And here we go. January 27th, 2013, lecture discussion number 96 on the Book of Romans. And uh, for those of you on the Internet that don't believe that I'm actually always right about the Super Bowl, I pointed out that uh, the Baltimore Ravens, a blackbird, are typologically in the sower uh, parable, uh, are, uh, uh, and the mustard seed parable are uh, actually demons, and the uh, rich um, uh, gold-digging uh, fools in the woods are uh, rich man Pharisee fools, and so we have the demons against the Pharisees, and the demons clearly are a superior uh, power. So uh, that's, uh, the Pharisees are just uh, works-based. The demons actually can do things. So we have uh, demons, or blackbirds, or Baltimore 28, uh, San Francisco 17. I just wanted to read that in the record because you will not believe that I was 100% right once again. Or maybe. Don't, don't, don't go with your life savings. Whatever. Okay. It seems as if we are barely moving here, unable to progress beyond Romans 5:12 through 14, which, as you remember, is uh, through one man, sin entered the world and death spread to all men. And also uh, included in that is uh, the second part of that, or 14 verse uh, of uh, 5 Romans, Adam, who is a type of him to come. So let me repeat those. Through one man, sin entered the world and death spread to all men, and Adam, who is a type of him to come. And we couple that verse, Romans 5, 12 through 14, or those verses to Genesis 3:22. The man has become like one of us, knowing good from evil. So I hope you see the type element there, or the like element in both. Adam, who is like him to come, the man has become like one of us, knowing good from evil. Obviously, those verses uh, have to be studied side by side because they have that type element or that like element in both of them. And to most who do so or at least the, the ones who connect Genesis 3.22 to Romans 5.14, uh, a major error is now avoided. When you put those two verses together and you recognize that they, they fit together and, and you use the information from both to help you figure out the other, you avoid a major error. And um, that major error, of course, is um, quite sadly commonplace. It's very usual to read opinions on Romans 5.14, um, and especially Genesis 3 as well, where they, um, they say things like the silence of Adam, like, like as if Adam were there next to Eve and said nothing while she destroyed herself. Um, that, that can't be defended, in my view. And it's also common in 5.14 where they say actually that that Adam wasn't really a type of Christ, or he wasn't like um, one of us. Like He didn't become like one of us. What he became, or what he is, they'll say, is a contrast to Christ. He's not a like Christ or a type of Christ, but he's actually the opposite of Christ. And they'll say so in that uh, Adam's sin impacted others, and Christ's death impacted others, which is true. But they'll say it's opposite. Adam's impact was all negative. Christ's impact, of course, all positive. Um, and I understand that, and I, and I get it, and I'm not really having issue with it. I do see Adam in a contrast role. However, the Holy Spirit declares Adam to be a type of Christ. That is not to be disregarded. And then following that, that declaration of Adam is Romans 5.15 
right immediately afterward. First it says, Adam is a type of Christ, and then the next word is, but the free gift is not like the offense. So in other words, he is, ty- he is a type of Christ, so you got to know that, but, on, but the free gift is not like the offense, which separates it into two, two things. In other words, Adam is a type of Christ, but Christ's free gift of substitutionary sacrifice is not like Adam's sin. So now we know something critical. Adam is indeed to be contrasted with Christ. That's He is indeed to be contrasted with Christ. Adam's sin is not like Christ's free gift. But Adam is also a type. Adam is also like Christ in some way. Adam is a prophecy and specifically honored as such. Specifically honored. So I have Adam declared to be a type of Christ like one of the us. And I have somebody else who is also described as like. Who is that in Scripture? You know? Huh? No, like Christ. Moses. Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like unto me. Deuteronomy 18.15. So not only is Adam said to be like one of the us or like one of us and a type of Christ, but also Moses is said to be like. He, he said someday a prophet will be raised up by God, the prophet, God himself, and that prophet, you will know who that prophet is because he will be uh, the, the prophet. I will be like him. In other words, you can look at me and see prophecies in my life that you can test against the, uh, the great prophet or Christ himself and be able to determine who the, who the Messiah is. Moses was telling Israel that he, Moses, was a type of Christ, like unto me. In Genesis 3.22, so Deuteronomy 18.15, like unto me, Genesis 3.22, the man has become like one of us. That's more side by side. So every time you read Genesis 3.22, tell yourself, okay, I have got to find Deuteronomy 18.15. Every time you're starting to look at what Adam did, then what should you also look for in Moses? The place where he did the same thing. And then what should you do next? Find the place in the New Testament where Christ did also, because Christ is the fulfillment of these two types. What they do in, in shadow or what they do in picture or in portrait, he actually does in this, this much higher level. As you know, it's called type and anti-type. The anti-type is the great fulfillment of the type, not the, uh, not the uh, against type. It's actually anti-type means the fulfillment of the type. And thus comes the most obvious of the obvious questions, right? If I got this relationship between Moses and Adam and the two of them teach me about Christ, uh, then I got this, this, these, the most obvious of the obvious questions. How exactly then is Adam a type of Christ? What evil did Adam know from what good? He knows good from evil. What evil does he know, and from what good specifically? And did Adam consider, ever consider, 
Because Christ substitutes himself for us. Did Adam ever consider substituting himself for Eve? Because he didn't do it. Did he consider it? And now you have to ask, why did he choose not to substitute himself for Eve? And I know, yes, I added them up. Those total three questions, or four questions, if you will. So you have to decide, if they're all the most obvious question, which is the most obvious of the most obvious questions? That, that's a joke. I appreciate the right side of the room. Trying to laugh. That's the best I got today. Again, it is appropriate to add in Moses at this juncture. You need to look at Moses when you're talking about Adam. So when I am in the Garden of Eden and I have Adam being like Christ, then I go to Moses who is like Christ and I look at both of them side by side trying to figure out how they fit, asking similar things. You see, as you know, my Numbers 20 lecture, Moses and Aaron fully expected Israel to kill them at Numbers 20. They thought they would kill them at Exodus 17. They're surrounded. Moses said, they're coming to kill me in both places. At Exodus 17, Moses and Aaron weren't prepared for it. Numbers 20, they were. They fully expected Israel to surround them and kill them. Especially Moses, he, said, he intentionally does something that he knows isn't right and, uh, and he expects failure, but in fact God doesn't allow it, does he? God takes something that Moses intentionally did wrong and still makes it work. We call that what? Pretty much what every pastor does every Sunday, right? He takes, takes intentional garbage and still makes it work. That's why I read Scripture almost every, I try to do it, 99.9% of the time. Every now and then I may not because I make a mistake, not because I don't do it, uh, intend to. I get out of time, which is a really bad excuse that I'm going to pay for. But I read Scripture because no matter what else I say, I know the Scripture, of course, is going to work, isn't it? What I say is not going to work. Anyway, I argue that both the both Aaron and, Ra, and Moses, or Moses and Aaron, both attempted to facilitate their own execution at, at uh, Numbers 20. I submit it's the only solution to Numbers 20, as you know. I, I say that they are tendering their resignations there, and God won't allow them to do that. If you haven't seen that or heard that lecture, I did it quite a few years ago. I think it's on Sermon Audio. I'm not positive of that, but I'm pretty sure it is. So in that sense, Adam and Moses share the experience of what? They share the experience of a wife in rebellion, the wife in sin and death, questioning the goodness of God, deceived about the goodness of God, and bringing the threat of death to the leader, if you will, Moses and Adam, sharing that, that headship. to the one, And that, that leadership is given to them by God, and he has placed them in authority over uh, the woman, if you will. Now, I say the woman because I want you to see how that fits. In Eve, it was a literal woman. In Israel, Israel is called the woman, right? A woman is a symbol for Israel. Uh, we should expect Moses and Adam to share um, lots of stuff, many attributes. Again, they're both described as like one of the us. A key mistake in any interpretation of Adam can't repeat this enough. Key mistake in any interpretation of Adam is to omit Moses from Adam. Moses' experiences mirror Adam's experiences. You can find both of them. 
uh, as you study them. You can only understand Adam correctly. Let me say this as strongly as I can. You can only understand Adam correctly in Genesis as he is battling through the two trees, through Satan, and uh, and deliberating over the uh, fate of Eve. You can only figure that out correctly um, it, by using Moses. And uh, eventually, uh, David. And then, of course, Christ. Now you can figure out what was going on there. It's a lot more complicated than people think. Beware of books that say that Adam was a fool and was silent and stood by idly while his wife destroyed herself. Adam did not do that. Okay, and likewise, the woman Eve and the woman Israel. So Moses has the woman Israel and Adam has the woman Eve. And yes, I know Eve is a type of the church as well. I know all of that as well. But in most of the time, uh, the woman Eve uh, comes up uh, as Israel. Um, Especially the seed of the woman, um, and and of course uh, the fact that <coughs> I have this rebellion from Eve, or the woman. Eve was deceived, right? Wasn't she? Israel deceived. Eve was deceived into believing the lie of Satan. So what's the obvious question? The nation of Israel deceived into believing the lie of Satan. What is the lie of Satan? Satan said that God was not good. In fact, God was instead evil. Genesis 2, 4 through 6. And same for the nation of Israel, right? I hope you've read the story. What did Israel do? As soon as they got out of Egypt, what did Israel do? Yeah, they, they constantly accused God of bringing them out of Egypt to murder them in the wilderness. So, just as Satan said, listen, God is, he's not good. He's hiding things from you. He's really evil. He doesn't want you to know about evil to Eve, and she bought it. Israel does the same thing. God is evil. He's lying to us. The same thing. It's the exact same argument. Eve is, uh, Israel brought out to be murdered in the wilderness, Exodus 17. So Eve is deceived by the same lie, and Israel is deceived by the same lie. But both women, uh, we should expect, would bring death to their leader. Israel did it to Moses. Eve did it to Adam. But God didn't allow it, did he? In the sense uh, that maybe some would say. Okay, why didn't Adam substitute himself uh, for the woman? Uh, just as an aside here, really quickly, I hope you remember. Adam was put in a deep sleep by God. And out of that deep sleep, out of his side, came the blood and the bone out of which he, uh, the woman was builded. Not from the dust, but out of Adam. And he's put in a deep, deep sleep by God. Think death. Moses dies on Mount Nebo. How did he die? By the hand of God. So by the hand of God, Adam is put into a deep sleep. By the hand of God, Moses dies on Mount Nebo. And God Christ, Christ himself, God himself. Christ, God in the flesh, gives up his own life in an instant, right? Boom. That's what made it so special. In an instant, poof, just as quickly as you can imagine. One minute he's on the cross and he's talking and he's saying all kinds of things. The next, just pow, just as fast as you can drop a light switch, he has ended his life. And that's what, by the way, got the centurion's attention there, was the quickness in which he, uh, 
he uh, ended his own life, the power that he had over it. So I want you to see the three of them again. Adam at the hand of God. Moses at the hand of God. And Christ, of course, is the hand of God. Also remember the two requests of Eve while posing. Poison, sorry, while posing. While poisoned that she makes of Adam. I've uh, done this before many times. It's my position that she said two things. Save me. Do not forsake me. That's what she says. And both are actual cries of Israel. Psalm 22.1, Matthew 14.29, Psalm 38.21, among the most prominent that will teach you or show you that Israel says, save me or uh, do not forsake me. You'll see uh, David uh, say that all the time. In Matthew 14:29 is Peter yelling out save me before he descends into the uh into the darkness of the sea Christ reaches out his hand and grabs him and says don't you believe I would always save you and you can see that in the relationship to Israel Israel will also have those same words said to them but Adam could not save Eve she could ask him to save her but he could not save her and he, of course why not why couldn't he save her I say that often without explaining the why not, by the way. Um, There's a reason. All that was available to Adam was to remain with Eve, to not forsake her. He could not save her. And and it is what's called the problem of the second tree. It's the purpose of the second tree. Because I got two trees, right? Eve goes to the first tree. I got a few people here that probably haven't heard this before. She goes to the first tree, takes the poison, goes back to so she goes to the first tree, takes the poison, comes back to Adam. I, I want to know how much time elapses. But they never go to the second tree, neither one of them, and that's a really interesting thing because most people would assume that the second tree possessed the antidote to the first tree. It does not. The second tree leaves you in the condition that you're in from the first tree forever. Does that make sense? So you are poisoned forever. So she goes to the first tree and she has physical death now, but she doesn't go to the second tree where she would be in death forever. And she comes back to Adam. So the second tree, the purpose of the second tree, or the doctrine of the second tree, or the problem of the second tree, that's what we're into right now. I also often say that the truth of eternal security is in the second tree. Perhaps you've heard me do that. The truth of eternal security is in Genesis 3:21 through 24. God covers Adam and Eve with innocent blood and then does something. After he has covered them with it, he takes off the fig covering, he puts on the blood covering, and after he has done that, he then makes something he say, he does something that is very important. He makes it impossible For them to do what? To go to the second tree. He makes it impossible for them to lose their salvation. Hebrews 6.4, Genesis 3.24. Essentially the same subject. And right off the bat, it's one of the impossibles. It's impossible to fall away from salvation. God makes it very clear from the beginning, Genesis 3. And and again, don't confuse salvation with repentance. People read Hebrews 6, 4, and they don't notice that it is talking about repentance of a believer, not the salvation of the believer. Anyway, 
I don't always explain the doctrine of the second tree either. I've done it many, many times, but I don't always do it. Uh, it's also something that you should be able to see by yourself. That's the goal here, is to get you to see by yourself. If great truths are not being revealed to you, uh, you should uh, ask what? If you, can't, if you can't read the Bible and figure these things out or see them, what should you ask? Why not? And what do you do next? Go get a mirror. Because chances are, by the way, you're questioning one of the basics. You're, you're questioning whether or not God is good, always good, can't be anything but good. He's love. He's also justice. But his justice contains what? Love. His justice contains goodness. If you start putting anything but goodness and love into the justice of God or the character of God, then you're in trouble and you'll find yourself. That's why I always say the first thing, Jesus is always God. Start there. And then Jesus is always good. If you begin to read the Bible and say, wow, this is God looks bad here. What's the problem? You are in, you're over, you're drowning. You have to purge that kind of thinking. Okay. Another run at Adam's three decisions, or what's also called Adam's dilemma. This is a good place to reinsert the questions of God. Okay? Um, the, the four pre-trial questions, I call them. Ah, and I got a note here to read the four of them. So let's do that. And then we'll put them on the board here and see if we can figure them out. Uh, Genesis 3, verse 8 through 13. And there's four questions here. And you need to know what they are and how they work. We're not going to cover it totally today, but we'll get it close. And they get you started. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So I have four questions. The first question is, where are you? Now, what's the question? What's the obvious question? You ask about that first question. I hope you don't ask this or you don't think this. I hope you never think that God doesn't know where you are. Or that he doesn't know where Adam is. He knows. He's omniscient. He's got to know. So I hope you don't ask that. If you've asked that, going, oh, poor God, he couldn't find them. They were, the fig leaves were so good camouflage that God couldn't find them. And he said, oh, where are you guys? Okay, that would be what? Foolish. Where are you? By the way, is it a physical question or a spiritual question? It doesn't matter in the sense that God knows both answers. So why does he ask the question? He wants you to answer it. It is very important that you be able to say where you are. It's very important. Let me get rid of this. I said, I'll change it here. Every day, it is important to say, where am I? Jeffy Coleman, if you remember, did a really nice lecture from a legal perspective where he talks about this is salvation. The whole thing is salvation, that circle. And you're in the salvation circle. You can't get out of it. He protects you. Genesis 3, 22 through 24, right? 
So you're, you're saved. But the question is, is are you in here or are you here? In other words, are you in, uh, do you have a relationship with God that is, are you in the right place? Do you have close fellowship, communion with God? Or are you here? You're still saved, but you're not, you're not inside where you should be. What is making you? So you've got to first ask yourself, do I have a close relationship with God? And if you don't, if you're out here, then why? What made you, what put you out there? I'm going to say to you that you broke down on the goodness of God. Doesn't affect your salvation, affects your communion. Affects your life. Do you have a life of of victory? Do you have a life of defeat? Breaks down. On the goodness of God, most of the time. So, where are you? It's not because God doesn't know. He knows. So, so that was the first question. Let me change it back. So, what would you expect now to happen next? Where are you? God is asking a question. When God asks a question, what should happen next? Should get an answer, so let's see. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said, by the way, he called to Adam. Isn't that interesting? Who, who, he didn't say, so God, the Lord God called to Adam and Eve and said, where are you? And you is a plural, you is a singular. Where is Adam? Does he care about Eve? Yeah, he does. Why is Adam the one that he's asking? So he said to him, Adam answers, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. Where are you? And the answer is, I'm naked. That's where I am. And I hid myself. And he said to him, and he said, who told you that you were naked? So that's question number two. Who told you? And you can see the element of nakedness in the answer and the next question, right? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Does God know the answer to that? So what is he asking him for? I tell kids all the time, he's going to find out really fast if Adam is stupid enough to lie to him. God has the videotape, right? Will people go in front of the great white throne and deny everything? Yeah. They will. Are you going to lie to God? You can lie to me. You can lie to yourself. That's, go ahead. Have, don't lie to God. Have you eaten? Question number three. Number four. Then the man said, let me read it. Have you, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree, tree? I commanded you that you should not eat. That's questions two and three. Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. 
And there's our great mystery. Is you see the great mystery? I'm trying to put it through to you that in this format, so you see it there. And the Lord God said to the woman, "What is this you have done?" Question four. What is this? That you have done. Question number four. And the woman answers. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord says to the serpent. Okay? So there's the four questions. And the most difficult and puzzling and mysterious is the second one. The who told you question that you were naked. Do you see the issue? I tried to lay it out as clean as I could. Do you see the issue there? Anybody? Go ahead. We got time. Huh? What would be interesting, but obviously the the somebody told them, huh? And he's asking who? Does he know who? Yeah, he knows who. And the who knows who. And the person who was told knows the who. We all know the who, and it's not a Dr. Seuss book. But everybody's got the who. Right? And it's a very, but let me give it to you. The mystery is not just the who, but there are exactly four questions. How many answers? Let me read the answers. Where are you? I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should eat, should not eat? The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Now, is that one answer or two answers? Is the woman the answer to the question who? Or is she the answer to the question, have you eaten? So do I have three answers or do I have four answers? That's what it is. Most will look at it and say um, that it is three answers. There's four questions, but only three answers. Some will say otherwise. Some will say, no, there's four, and the woman is identified as the who. Which leads to this. Did Adam answer both questions two and three with answer two? If so, how so? Or did Adam not answer question two? If so, why not? Does that all make sense? If it does, well... Were you weird before you came to Cliffside? Or did Cliffside make you weird? Who told you that you are now naked? You could read it that way if that helps you. Question two connects to answer one. That's obvious again by the repeat of the naked. So how is this to be explained? And then that's why it's called the mystery of the second question. Who could have told Adam he was naked? Who's on the list? I'm going to make the list. Who's on the list? Who could have told Adam that he was naked? By the way, it seems to imply that he needed to be told, doesn't it? I got answer number one is who? The woman. Answer number two is who? Satan. I got two people that could have told him. Now, does the woman know she's naked? If she does know she's naked, who told her? So ultimately, it has to, whoever told her, if she tells Adam, then ultimately, they all have the same source. 
By the way, if Satan told her, the woman, that she was naked, do you think he wouldn't enjoy telling the man that he was naked? And by, uh, What's that? It, it could be a result of eating it, but God asks, who told you? See, I have the garment view is what you're headed to. The garment is gone because of the eating. Now, that's another long story. You're in the book of Revelation and the white people under the throne. Not white people, sorry. The people in the white robes under the throne. That's the garment position. That's why the fig leaves, the covering position. God's covering is removed. God puts a new covering on them, by the way. But it's a temporary covering in that sense. Um, that it is uh, uh, not like, well, never mind. I won't, I won't get into that. I'll be there all day. Who could have told Adam he was naked? What is the purpose of telling Adam that he's naked? What is the meaning of nakedness? What's it mean? Who would benefit from telling Adam he was now naked? Who would rejoice in the nakedness of Adam? Who would enjoy telling Adam that he was naked? I submit that uh, Satan is the answer to question two. Next week, I will make my case a little bit better. I understand the woman aspect of it, but I think that Satan is the answer to question two. And if Satan is the one that told Adam that he was naked, what's the obvious question? Well, yeah, why did he tell him? But is it true? Does Satan tell you the truth very often? See, Adam says, I was naked and I hid myself. And God says what? Who told you you were naked? What made you think you're naked? What does naked mean? Who told you you were naked? Do you see the implication that it may not be true? If it's not true, then what is that? What does naked mean? What do you think it means? Give me an idea. I'll, I'll have a drink of my soda, in case you're listening. Some people accuse me of other things in the soda. Go ahead. What did you say, Bill? Without God's covering, which means what? He's, he's unsaved now. Is that what you were going to say, unsaved? Saved? Is he unsaved? He's certainly not unsavable, is he? That's proved. Is he unsaved now? Who told you you were unsaved? Who told him he was unsaved? I would tell you that that's something that Satan would say. Why would Satan say to him, you're unsaved? You're in trouble, baby. You're unsaved. What's he trying to get him to do? Go to the second tree. But Adam was never deceived. The woman was deceived. Adam never deceived. Did the woman believe? She was. Unsaved. Lots of questions, right? If you have unsaved, it's the nakedness issue. Not everybody does, let me tell you that. So we'll battle that out. But I just want you to know that that just because that it's there, that he just because Adam says he was naked. God responds in a way that seems to imply that he's not. So is it true comes to play. And keep in mind that Satan is also part of this court trial procedure. 
are proceeding. It's obvious that Satan is present. God specifically speaks to him. That's why I said, so the Lord God said to the serpent, why I read verse 14. And that causes many more questions. Why is Satan present? Why is he there? Why would Satan stick around? He's just blown up Adam and Eve in a sense that uh, he blew up Eve and Adam has a response, an undeceived response. But he's still in, uh, in he's still definitely in, in difficulty. Why is Satan hanging around? Because he knows this procedure is going to happen, doesn't he? And who's going to be there? Who's coming to the trial? Just the three of them? No, I have the whole angelic host. Satan is, is prominent. He wants to be there. He's definitely there. And he doesn't, uh, he isn't, his words aren't recorded here, but we can get an idea. Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14. And it's, like I said, God speaks specifically to him, which causes many more questions. Besides the obvious that if God wishes him to be there, Satan can't resist. And that's like the away with you or the be gone. I conclude that Satan wanted to be there uh, just as in Matthew 4. He saw an opportunity. How many angels do I got? I got lots of them. But I've divided them into two groups. What's group number one called? The two-thirds. What's the other group called? The one-third. There's still two-thirds, isn't there? And Satan just didn't say, well, I got one-third. That's pretty good. I'll, I think I'll shut it down now and take my one-third. That's, you know, that's all right. I don't care about the other two-thirds. Let God have the two-thirds. That's not what Satan's doing, isn't he? He's after what? He's after everything. With the humanity, did he get a third of humanity? No. He got 99%. See, the question is, is how do you get so many humans and so few angels? Humans felt like we're suckers. We're like the French army. We fold up. Cheap suit, lawn chair, put in, put wherever you want. But there remained two-thirds of the angelic realm, and Satan sought all of it. He seeks for unanimity. Always, And you should always add Jude 9, by the way, to all discussions of Satan. It's on the side. Michael, the... Or the Michael, the archangel, is outranked by Satan. That's obvious in Jude 9. And Michael dared not to be disrespectful to his once commanding officer, if you will, to put it in that terms. That's Jude 9. Satan is, or was, whichever, is, was, the anointed cherub. He is the highest ranking created being in the angelic realm. And Michael left any and all rebukes of Satan to God. He made it clear in Jude 9 that God alone rebukes Satan. And that tells you, again, something about Satan's rank. No one could rebuke him. And, and Michael treats him with great deference. And that explains, by the way, Matthew 4, if you want to reread that. Because this is a Matthew 4 discussion. You can't get out of it. Especially the angels at the end of Matthew 4... The angels come to Christ after Satan is rebuked by Christ and away with you, Satan, and he goes away. He can't stop. He can't help himself. He's got to go. Too much power. He is, he is sent away. No one else can send him away but who? God. No one can rebuke him but who? God. And Satan is rebuked at the conclusion of Matthew 4 by Christ. What's that mean? Christ is God. 
So who now knows that? For sure. In case you had any doubts, if you're an angel, now you know, whoa, that's God. Everybody knows, including Satan, and the one-third. And then what happens after that, by the way, the conclusion of Matthew 4, after he says, away with you, Satan, there's something very, there's a behold there. It's really amazing. Um, um, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to Christ. That's what it says, behold. Uh, Do I need to scream behold? No. Good. Because I'm not very good at it. But behold, angels came and ministered to Christ. He and only he can rebuke the highest cherub. uh, And behold, angels came after he does it. And uh, as again, just so you understand that. How does an angel minister to God? What do you think that is? They bring him peeled grapes? Are they fanning him? You know, does he need uh, needs a uh, Gatorade? Uh, You know, a hot bath? How do you minister to God? Please don't think any of that's possible. How do you minister to God? Because they know it's God. How do they do it? Define ministering. What pleases God? Yeah, what pleases God is that you know who He is. Knowing Him. Knowing who He is. Knowing what and how He thinks. Knowing why He does what He does. Because He's what? Good. This goodness of God is a fundamental aspect that has to be present in your doctrine. Or you will end up out here. You know, I... You're not going to be in communion. You're probably going to be right there. And your life is going to be a debris field. Flotsam and jetsam. Think Titanic iceberg you lose. You've got to get this solved, this goodness of God. That's how you minister to God. You know who He is. You know what He does. You know why He does it. You, you, you know Him. You know how He thinks. You don't question His goodness. Okay. The favorite part of the sermon is where I say, finally. I have two pages. Okay, I have three pages of finally. Finally takes three pages. Adam and the woman. I'm often asked to defend my position. I get a lot of emails and such. Uh, they're frustrated with me because I, I don't go over it as often as they would. If I did everything the email people said to do, I would stay in the same subjects every week. And that doesn't, that's not their fault. They've never heard them before. And so uh, um, I, uh, I just can't... Uh, I can't bog down that way, but it's not their fault. Uh, I just, uh, again, I have to move forward as much as I can. But I'm often asked to defend my position on Adam being separated from Eve while she is being deceived by Satan. Uh, In other words, I say that Adam is not with Eve. She is not with Adam. She's alone. And And by the way, that fits with Israel, right? Israel is... Same way, the church is the same way, right? The bride, the woman, we're here, if you will, when Christ is separated from us. And, and Satan is beating up on us. Isn't that true? 
And so Adam is separated from Eve while she is being deceived by Satan. Ultimately, the definition of with her, so let me just read the verse so you understand the problem. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes, which was both a lie and the tree desirable to make one wise, another lie, she took of its fruit and ate, period. Then it says this, she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. And people make the assumption that they are side by side. And that is an incorrect assumption. See, there's a time difference between and ate and she also. And that is, uh, that's called the uh, Hebrew law or principle of double reference. The Bible was written by Jews, inspired by, by the Holy Spirit, but written by Jews. Primar- and the Jews write a certain way. What they do is they blend events. And they blend it into one picture. And they don't indicate that there's a separation of time between the events or a gap of time. They, they think you know. They think you know the story, so they don't have to tell you. They, they, say, they don't have to say, that it's almost elementary to them. To them, it's clear that they're not side by side and that there's a period of time between um, she ate and, she, and also she gave to her husband. The question is, is how much time is there? But it's not side by side. You're going to see that with the Messiah uh, Zechariah 9, 9 through 10 is a prime example. The first comings and the second coming are in the same sentence and they look like they're side by side. How much time is separating the first comings and the second coming? So far, 2,000 years. Isaiah 11, 1 through 5 is another example of that. This is Genesis uh, uh, 3, 6 is an example of that. She took it of its fruit and ate. Stop. Time. It's blended together. You'll read it as if it's together, but you can't do that. It's the principle of double reference. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Okay? Genesis 3, 6, because you have to add the other verses that, that deal with this. First Timothy 2.14, uh, become one of us, uh, 3.22. Uh, Moses again. David eventually. Christ, of course. When you put them all together, you see this time is involved. How much time do you think is between? This is going to follow a pattern, isn't it? We're going to find that pattern someplace else. Uh, uh, Troy said it's a sign of Jonah, probably the strongest position. There's some disagreement. We'll get into it. But also, uh, this becomes apparent when Adam is compared to Moses and the woman is compared to Israel. You get it all worked out. We'll, we'll, we'll work on that next week. So, Eve comes to Adam dying and says, save me and do not forsake me. And Adam deliberates. Could be the sign of Jonah. Could be 30 days. He's got to keep her from going to the second tree. And she's got to obey that, by the way, which is extraordinary for her, isn't it? But she does it. And she's called the, she has the seed of the woman. She's the mother of the living. She's honored. And Satan watches, and the angelic realm watches. That, by the way, is 1 Corinthians 1.9. Adam, the apostles, us, we're on display for the angelic realm. Mike Tavalero will be jumping up and down screaming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what it's about. Don't forget the angelic realm. Adam cannot save Eve. Because salvation has to be something or it isn't salvation. What does salvation have to be or it's not salvation? It's got to be permanent. 
He can't save her permanently. And which means it's not salvation. Just as existence must be existence, uh, I'm sorry, existence must be eternal, it must be immortal, or it's not existence. Adam could sacrifice himself. He has sinless blood. He has innocent blood, right? Before he takes the fruit, his blood is available to sacrifice or to, to cover her sin, the transfusion, if you will. He is available for that. He has innocent blood. And I think Satan is prepared, by the way, for this. And I think Satan believes Adam is hopelessly trapped. But Adam is not deceived, and Adam is thinking, and he's also prepared. As Satan would have figured all of this out, right? I'm going to get the woman in trouble. I really don't know if I want her to go to the second tree. Because then it's out of my hands and I can't get Adam. So i got to get her to go back to Adam. But I also think Adam said, don't go to the second tree. If this happens, here's contingency number one. Come back to me. So both of them, both Adam and Satan, wanted the woman to come back to Adam. That was the trap. Because he doesn't want one-third of the angels. He wants three-thirds of the angels. He doesn't want one-half of the men here, or one-half of humanity. He wants both of them. Take them both out. No survivor. Sally sings. If there are no survivors, then what have we done? We have none saved. If we have none saved, then what? Salvation can be defeated and God must have no solution to sin. See how it all fits together? Hope you do. And if there's no solution to sin and there is no salvation, then what is God? Not good. Again, all on the goodness of God. So I think Satan figured Adam is hopelessly trapped. But Adam is not. Adam's response is to trust in the goodness of God. Adam's response is to trust in the intervention of God. And Satan did not think that. He thought otherwise. Again, next week we'll keep fighting. Anyway, if, just to kind of put it together to get you through it today. If Adam were to die as a substitute for Eve, then Eve has already proven something. She's already proven that she is subject to the lies of Satan. Isn't she? So if Adam is to physically die, then who's left? Let's put him on the list. Here I have Eve. I'm sorry. I have, I have Adam. I have the woman. And I have Satan. If Adam is to be removed, who's left? Pretty easy math. The woman and Satan. How did she do last time? Not so good. In fact, that's why we have the problem. Okay? So Adam clearly can't leave her alone with Satan. That happened once. Bad news. The woman, and this is obvious, she would just go back to the tree of poison again, wouldn't she? She would just do it again. So even though he can, he can save her by dying, is it permanent? No, it's temporary. She goes right back to the first tree again. And then what happens? She goes to the second tree. So he cannot leave her alone. He cannot save her, but he must not forsake her. Does that make sense? So in that way, he is a type of Christ. He has, a, he has the ability to save, but not at the high level, but he does not forsake. And that becomes obvious from Genesis 3.22. Lest he put out his hand and take also from the second tree. That's what it says, or the tree of life, or the tree of forever, to be more accurate. The woman cannot be trusted to resist the first tree and then the second tree after she, uh, she will clearly repoison herself. She is bent on self-doom, and she knows it, because she says what? 
She knows she's in trouble. How do I know? Don't forsake me. If you forsake me, I'm, I'm doomed. We both know it. You're not deceived. You can handle it. Together we can do it. Don't forsake me. The serpent, the servant, I'm sorry, let me read her thing. The serpent deceived me and I ate. The serpent will deceive me again. I'll eat again. I'm deceivable. He's not. Don't forsake me. What an incredible understanding of self. What, an, what a great answer to the first question. Where am I? I'm in trouble. I'm in horrible trouble. I gotta know it. That's how you make it. If you can't answer question one correctly, then you're, you're in the ditch. And you'll stay in the ditch. How's that for application? And Adam knows it. She knows it. That's why it works. Everybody knows. Everybody agrees. And God knows it. And He guards their salvation from themselves. Adam cannot leave her alone. She will throw herself into death. By the way, that makes her like who? Us. That's why we're not supposed to leave each other alone. That's why we don't isolate ourselves. Because we're going to throw ourselves in front of a bus, a train, anything. What are we? Let's say it in unison. We're idiots. That's what we are. And you've got to know it. I'm going to run out into traffic. Can't stop me. Watch me go. That's us. But God is good. You've got to know where you are. You've got to know who He is. And then you get here, in the middle, in communion. And your life begins to un- unfold. You have, you have victory. Do you have a great life? Do you make a lot of money? Do you win the publisher's clearing house? No. What do you get? You get peace. It's all you get. And then eventually you get the greatest gift that you can ever imagine, that we can imagine. That's eternal, immortal life in the presence of God. Adam is not deceived. That's why he can't forsake her, and they both know it. That's part one. Next week, part two. Let's rise. Peter Smith.